Greetings, and welcome to Converging Streams, Interfaith Fellowship in Our Modern World. Our program is a production of the Muncie Interfaith Fellowship and the Unitarian Universalist Church of Muncie. This week's lesson is entitled, Can We Have a Nonviolent Apocalypse? Please welcome Reverend George Wolfe. In the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, is described the coming of the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. This image is further developed in a letter from the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians, where he says, quote, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will be raised first, and we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This image has become known as the rapture. However, ironically, the word rapture does not appear in Christian scripture. But it has somehow become a part of the evangelical uh, Christian vocabulary which uh, describes the end of time. Now, for those of us who accept a modern-day scientific worldview, the idea of a literal rapture seems somewhat unbelievable. For above in the sky, we now know is not heaven, but rather the hostile vacuum void of space. The stars, which in the book of Genesis and other locations say were fixed in heaven by the Creator, are actually moving at tremendous speed and are light years away, could not possibly fall from heaven, as it says in the book of Matthew. And the moon does not actually give light, but rather is simply a reflection of the sunlight. So the idea of a literal, of a literal uh, view in that sense seems very difficult for us to grasp today. But 1,500 to 4,000 years ago, this ancient creationist worldview made perfect sense. After all, we have to remember the scriptures of the ancient world were written before Columbus and Magellan proved the world was round, before Darwin formulated his theory of evolution, before Einstein proved that time could actually speed up and slow down, and that gravity warps space, and before we knew that the stars were light years away and in constant motion. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all ascribe cataclysmic events to the end of time when the earth will be reformed and righteousness will be restored. In addition to being cataclysmic, apocalyptic scriptures also make ample use of martial or military metaphors and images and bellicose symbols. In Hinduism, there is a tradition that there are to be ten incarnations of Vishnu, the preserver deity. We have had nine, and we are still waiting for the tenth. The tenth is Kalki, who is yet to come. And in a book by D.V. Singh called Hinduism, an introduction, he says that Kalki is sometimes described as coming at the end of the age to save mankind and reestablish dharma or righteousness, to usher in a golden age, a new age of purity and peace. 
He sometimes is described as riding a white horse, blazing with a comet, like a comet, and holding a flaming sword. Now, those of you who may be familiar with the book of Revelation and the Christian tradition may remember an image of the return of Christ, which is described in a very similar way. In the book of Revelation, uh, the apostle writes, then I saw the heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire and from his mouth issues a sharp sword with which to smite the nations that he may rule them with an iron rod. The sword, of course, in these contexts is likely to be that a symbol of that which separates good from evil. But these martial or military images actually date back before uh, Christianity, uh, perhaps at least a thousand years, to the time of the prophet Zoroaster in Persia, who embraced a highly dualistic worldview. And this view is also found in Greek Gnosticism and in Jewish Athene theology. The earth is seen as a battleground for the forces of good and evil. Angels in the celestial realm are at war with the demons of the infernal, of the astral world. These good and evil forces are seen as acting through us on the stage of the earth. For it is believed, it was believed that evil forces trick us in our ignorance uh, into, into committing evil in the name of God. Zoroaster thus taught that if you use evil to overcome evil or against evil, you are merely strengthening evil. You are playing into the hands of darkness. He concluded, therefore, that we must overcome evil with good. And he prescribed a threefold teaching, which simply stated is good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. This metaphor, though, of playing into the hands of darkness or playing into the hands of the enemy and actually doing what the enemy wants you to do is expressed remotely also in an emerging concept of peace studies called redemptive violence. Redemptive violence is defined as violence committed out of the belief that it will liberate oneself from earthly struggle and result in a heavenly reward. Redemptive violence invites volunteer martyrdom. That is to say, pseudo-suicide missions is what we see today in terrorism. Unfortunately, we really fail to understand how classical military strategies of war are inept in dealing with the nature of redemptive violence. The differences are rather clear when enumerated. First of all, in the classical military sense, the strategy is to win, to end the conflict and to arrive at a treaty or some sort of resolution to end the conflict. But from the redemptive violence view, it is not important to win. All that is important is that you do not lose, that you can continue your redemptive mission. In the classical military sense, you protect territory or land and think geographically. But in the redemptive sense, you're not thinking geographically. The kingdom you are wishing to establish is not of this world. 
and it can be everywhere, not bound by geographical boundaries. It's become clear that using military aggression against redemptive violence, first of all, plays into the hands of, of those who are the enemy and enables them to actually fulfill, gives them the opportunity to actually fulfill the redemptive mission. It strengthens the enemy rather than weakens it, simply because before the conflict started, the enemy or these small cells really are not well known, but a declaration of war gives them international prominence. And the result then uh, ends with a, a low-grade state of perpetual war. Well, nevertheless, martial religious images and the belief in an antiquated creationist worldview have led to apocalyptic rhetoric by politicians and religious leaders to secure support uh, from those who adhere to a literalist interpretation of the end of time. I remember three or four years ago, just after the uh, war in Iraq began on uh, CNN, it was uh, someone being interviewed who was describing what it looked like in Iraq as the armies were moving in. He uses the word Armageddon to describe what it looked like. Armageddon being the ultimate culminating battle which is referred to in the book of Revelation. And recently the president of Iran talks about a scripture passage which describes the coming of an Islamic messiah and that before that happens, winged horses will descend on Jerusalem. And he interprets winged horses to mean missiles. Given this rhetoric and the misguided beliefs that support it, there is great risk that the violent interpretation of apocalypse will become a self-fulfilling prophecy, even to the point of believing that a nuclear exchange is inevitable. Such a self-fulfilling prophecy is rooted in this ancient, and now we know, disproven worldview. Therefore, we need an alternative, non-cataclysmic, and non-violent view of the apocalypse. Fortunately, such an alternative is also found in Scripture. The Apostle Paul, for example, uses armor in this context. In chapter 13 of the book of Romans, he calls upon us to, quote, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I find it enlightening to also look at other religious traditions for alternative non-literalist interpretations of the apocalypse. For the word apocalypse literally means unveiling or revelation. Hindu, descript, Hindu tradition, in Hindu tradition, there is a concept called Maya. And Maya is, is depicted as a veil which shrouds the soul, the veil of ignorance, which when enlightenment dawns is removed so that one may perceive reality free from bias and prejudiced assumptions. Same image, the same symbol was heard today in the reading from Isaiah when it says that the Lord will lift the veil that is spread over all nations. And the Apostle Paul also uses this symbol when he says, when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are changed 
into his likeness. And so this is, as I see it, the concluding message of the Mahabharata, that we must not delude ourselves that if our Armageddon does come and does occur in a violent way, particularly if it involves a nuclear exchange, there will be no miraculous transformation. Rather, there will be destruction on a scale that dwarfs Hiroshima. There would be no descent of a new Jerusalem, no idyllic birth appearing before us, only massive carnage, disease, and death, all of which would dwarf Katrina and the Asian tsunami. We would be left with a world that would take perhaps many decades to rebuild. Indeed, such an Armageddon would be a great defeat for humanity. We therefore, if we are sane, compassionate human beings, have no choice but to pursue a nonviolent apocalypse, an unveiling that reveals a new paradigm to reorder and heal our fragmented and broken world. To use words similar to the Apostle Paul in his letters to the Corinthians, the veil that covers our mind must be lifted that we be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. That we may no longer see through a glass darkly, but ultimately see the unity of humanity, and in it behold the glory of the divine. Thank you for listening to Converging Streams, Interfaith Fellowship in Our Modern World. Our program is a production of the Muncie Interfaith Fellowship with content and financial support from the Unitarian Universalist Church of Muncie and technical support from radio stations WCRD and Work FM. Most importantly, we thank you, our listeners and followers, for your support. To connect with Converging Streams, including listening to our entire catalog of past programs, getting our latest new content, and making your own contribution to this program, visit our website, convergingstreams.org. Converging Streams is produced by Tony Piazza, George Wolf, and Thomas Perchlick. Thank you for listening, and have a pleasant week.